This episode is in partnership with Authority Magazine. Authority Magazine, a medium publication, is devoted to sharing in-depth and interesting interviews featuring people who are authorities in business, pop culture, wellness, social impact, and tech. Today, we're going to put you behind bars. Well, sort of. We are going to speak with someone who dedicates her life to advocacy for those locked up in prison. Her name is Phyllis Taylor, although many simply refer to her as the prison lady. And as we'll soon find out, Phyllis Taylor comes to this work through hardships of her own. Uh, Phyllis, welcome to Believe in People. Thank you so much, Kevin. I am delighted to be with you this morning. Why is it, why do you have an affinity for people who are behind bars? I don't know if I have an affinity for people who are behind bars. I found myself with them, but um, that was a, a journey. There was a set of circumstances that led me there. But I must say, to your point, that I absolutely adored the position that I had there and found myself in a place that just felt like a fit. Why? Because I, I suppose we can we can shortcut how I ended up in, in prison, how I ended up in prison. But <laughs> I can certainly tell you that once I arrived there, I found myself. I had been teaching lawyers for 20 years in a, a very uh, international, prestigious downtown Toronto law firm. And when that all came to a, 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 an abrupt and unpleasant ending after a total of 30 years with the firm, I uh, I found my calling. I found my calling. I uh, went to see Oprah. She had, Oprah had come to Toronto and she, yes, Oprah had come to Toronto to do a life class, I believe at the Air Canada Centre about 13 years ago. And she had Skyped in some women from a penitentiary in Indiana. And I had just lost a job of 30 years and, you know, get up, make the bed and think, all right, now what am I going to do with the rest of my life? And still very capable of doing something very, you know, important. And um, I had had a very abusive childhood. I came from a, an Orthodox Jewish home and I had been severely abused by my dad and locked up for a period of time. One year in incarceration in my own home in the basement. Yeah. So when, pardon me? My goodness. It is a my goodness. It's a certainly big my goodness. And so I think when I found myself at Oprah's and and I was Bishop T.D. Jakes was on stage and he was talking and he was interacting with the women, the six women from the penitentiary in Indiana. I literally slapped my knee and I screamed, holy F, the real <laughs> word. That's what I'm going to do with the rest of my life. And I seriously couldn't get home quickly enough to wake up the next morning, call every prison uh, or detention center that I thought I could drive to within a, a 20 mile radius. And uh, a couple of weeks later, I got a call back from one of the content administrators. And when I found myself in prison for the very first time after a series of training, I felt like I had arrived. And when I met the men, I felt like I was there for a reason. So Phillips, for, Phyllis, for our uh, viewers and listeners, let's start at the beginning just to get an idea as to sort of your journey, your healing journey, because I imagine that this is part of that huge discovery when you first um, met Oprah and yes. sort of shifted. How did it begin? No, I appreciate that you wrote a book called The um, the Prison Lady. 
And did I say that right? Yes. And, yes, um, you did. and I, and it's about lessons learned. So take us back to, and I'm sorry, I hope this, I know that you've said this quite a few times in other podcasts, but what happened when you were younger? How old were you? And then, you know, why were you the scapegoat for your family? And then what transitioned and what inspired you to work in law and sort of just kind of take it, take us on a little bit of a journey. All great questions. So in the beginning I had, uh, as I said, I had a, a dad who was extremely Orthodox and my mom, not so much, both of them being Jewish, but my father, very extreme Orthodox, my mother kind of on the other side of, of uh, reform and they got married late in life. My mother was called corsage receiving, but never really settled down and chose someone. When she chose my father, what they forgot to do was talk about how that marriage was going to look, but they just rushed off to have marriage and have babies. And so there is a thing called the scapegoat child. My father was a very angry man. He was a Holocaust sympathizer, not survivor. There's a difference, but he was a Holocaust sympathizer, i.e. he had had um, many family members and friends who had survived or not survived the war. And therefore he was very angry about the whole thing. And I became his punching bag. So I would be for, for having just the tiniest white lie, I would, um, or anything, a mark under a, I would get, I would get severely beaten and physically, physically. Oh yes. Physically. Mm -hmm. And at one point, when um <laughs> i was go-go dancing in the village this is this is how i earn extra money for makeup <laughs> i wish i could still do it these days and i was go-go dancing in the village in yorkville down in toronto and uh well i didn't have my parents permission and so my parents would go to sleep and i would crawl out the basement window i had a room to myself in the basement i would get up on the shelf my the shelf that dad built and how old were you phyllis how old were you i was 15 now wow okay 15 years old and i crawl up on the shelf and i'd crawl out the basement window and leave the screen on the ground a little bit of a clue but what had happened that particular evening that i got caught was we had a a ravine at the side of our house where i crawl out and people would walk their dogs and walk their husbands. Well, Harvey, neighbor Harvey, was walking <laughs> walk their his husbands. Dog. He was, yes. <laughs> he was walking his dog one evening and spotted my teenage ass crawling out the bedroom window and promptly ran home to tell Mrs. Weinstein what he had seen. That's his mom. And she called my mother and woke up my parents, of course, who were in disbelief but notwithstanding, made their way down to the basement and found that, in fact, the room was empty. So they sat there in the dark, awaiting my return. <laughs> and when I arrived home at something like two o'clock in the morning, now this is a school night. This is a school night. So you know where my preferences are at the time. And I'm crawling in the window and I see my parents are sitting in the dark and I see four, you know, white eyeballs. And in that moment, you know, my life flashed completely in front of me. And I thought, do I take that leg out and run? I have one leg on the counter, one still on the backyard, grass. And I thought, no, where, you know, where am I going? I'm 15 years old with not a lot of family either. That's a story in and of itself. But um, I brought my, I crawled in and I was severely punished. My mother 
went and grabbed my diary. Everything was read aloud. And honey, I could tell a story even in those days. And so there was a lot of graphics in my diary. And my boyfriend was never to be seen again. And I was not to see daylight for a year. Although, uh, just to be fully transparent, I was taken to school and back. I was driven to school and back. But after school, locked in the room. And why I didn't a talk year? About it. Phyllis, why a year? Do you know what? There was no particular time. But after a year, after a year, my girlfriend, Judy, who's my childhood friend, we were friends since we were three years old, came and knocked on my door. Now, re remember, I wasn't bragging about this incident. And I wasn't telling kids at school. I, made, I appeared normal. Well, that's a joke in any good day. So uh, Judy came knocking on my door and asked if she could visit with me. And my parents let her in. And that was the end of the curfew or lockup or whatever you want to call it. Wow. But I really need to add, and it's important to add, that although my dad had this failing, so to speak, he also insisted upon honesty, integrity. He insisted that I work in a law firm. And he also insisted that I become a public speaking, award-winning public speaker. And so from the time I could touch the kitchen counter, he would have me re remember or memorize portions of the Reader's Digest and regurgitate them in public speaking contests. So I am an award-winning <laughs> public speaker and impromptu speaker. And then true to form, the way my dad insisted, I began working in a law firm. So it's not an accident. I believe that everything that has happened to me is being on a journey or a path, if you will, to bring me to where I am today. And it's continuing. And this, it sounds like this journey that you just described is, and it ended with this epiphany when you were in the big hockey arena in Toronto watching Oprah. And where have you taken it from there? How do you how do you even connect with men and women who are in jail for crimes? Okay, so it didn't really end at the Air Canada Centre. It began at the Air Canada Centre as I had the epiphany, as you say, and to your point. And then from there, I went home, called the prisons and got into one. So your question, your, your, your follow-up question to that was, how do I connect with the men and women who I've been had worked with over a decade in the prison system. How do I connect with them? Honestly, Kevin, exactly the same way I can connect with you. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter whether it's you or Amy or the lawyers I was teaching or, or the guy who's shoveling the snow or the prisoners in the prison. I can connect with them because I want to, because I care, because I bring, I bring to the arena kindness, respect, hope and some guidance so i'm there oprah and that's exactly what i want to be and how does that what did that look like sorry kev um what does that look like phyllis like what do you do what do you do in the um in the prison for the men and women so throughout my my life and even when i was teaching lawyers in the law firm i always had a sideline of doing motivational and competitive speaking mostly uh pre-prison i was doing competitive speaking but I have always been a keynote speaker or a motivational speaker. 
And that's what I was doing in the prison, Amy. I was doing motivational speaking. But what what it evolved into is even more interesting, I think. Because <laughs> Just like, okay, you can do your time. Come on, you can do it. <laughs> it's, it's, it's not about that because they don't even no, have a choice sorry. about that. But I, and I know that's funny. And there's a lot of funny things that go on. And some very not so funny things too. But sure. um, what ended up happening was because I was doing these motivational speaking on topics that I was actually allowed to choose my topic. And because my discipline is in journalism, my educational discipline is in journalism, I'm able to write. So speak and write kind of went together nicely. And I would write on topics of, you know, gratitude, forgiveness, um, uh, building your confidence, lessening your stress, uh, building a healthy relationship, having intentional happiness. So I would do a lesson on one of these things every week. And if I really was ambitious, I would do my my slideshows because I do some desktop publishing. So I would do a slideshow with some of my, my presentations. And at the end of it, the men were pretty intrigued. And so what they wanted to do was continue the conversation. So I ended up in uh, life coaching them. Some of it I did like kind of on the side because I'm not brought in to be a life coach. And usually when you ask a question on, may I do this? The answer is no. And then a year later, you get a yes. So I kind of kept a few guys behind, like we're having a conversation. But really what we were doing, we were doing life coaching. Mm-hmm. I mean, they were life coaching me and I was life coaching them. And the education I got in there is invaluable. Okay. So now is the time to tell us. What kinds of people were you talking to? What were they in there for? And the one word you never mentioned was judge, as in, did you ever judge them? Once. One man. So let me let me answer first question first. The people that were in the prison, so I had um, altogether worked in five different prisons, and the people that I worked with were both men and women, and they were in there from, the women were in there for, drugs, prostitution, um, they were in there for um, theft and some very minor offenses, even driving offenses. So there was a whole gambit of things. But I was also given permission after about two years, that's a general population for women I'm speaking of now. After a couple of years, I was given permission and that was a whole tough episode in in my journey uh, to go upstairs into unit three, I believe it was, and work with the women in protective custody. Now, those women were charged with statutory rape. There was a, a teacher in there who was accused of raping a, uh, um, a student of hers. And also there were murders in there. And there were people that had uh, women who had real deficiencies in terms of learning. So they had both intellectual and uh, emotional delays. So, I mean, if I was doing a lesson in general population on building a healthy relationship, when I went into the protective custody unit, it might take three times as much to deliver that lesson. But I'm telling you, doesn't matter where I went, they would wait for me to walk through the door and I would I would bring them something that they didn't didn't seem to get anywhere else or may never have gotten throughout their entire life. You asked me if I judge. And I think that it is fair to say that we are all alive thinking human beings. And as we 
speak to people, we start forming opinions. But I don't think I ever took it into the arena of judging until I sat down one day with a man who came to me at the end of the lesson on forgiveness, a man I will never forget. And he came to me to explain to me his circumstances. And I mean, I have to take a deep breath just to talk about this. But what ended up happening was he told me his story. And I don't probe. I sit, I listen, I take it in. I might ask for clarification. I might want the odd gentle detail, but I'm not really digging any deeper than they're prepared and comfortable and going. And uh, when this particular gentleman started telling me his story, I wanted to get up and run away. You see, he had violated his granddaughter and his granddaughter was about eight years old. And I have two little granddaughters myself who were younger than that at the time, but it was quite upsetting, nauseating. And in that moment, I think I judged him. I think was that would asking, be fair to say. Was he asking for help? He came to me asking for help. What he wants, yes. He came to me on the subject of forgiveness, but really, he wasn't really asking for forgiveness. He didn't really care about forgiveness. What was happening, you know, ask me about remorse in a moment. So the thing is that he came to me because his son, the father of the young gal I spoke of, his son had said to him, we want nothing further to do with you please move away. We would like you not to be living in this small town of ours anymore because it's too painful to see you and to interact with you. And you know, every time an inmate would come to me for advice, I would dig deep and I would try to give them the best possible advice. I mean, I studied in order to do this. I studied in order to give them some good sound advice and I would give them good sound advice. But when he came to me and because of his offense, because of his attitude, and I'll say it, because of his lack of remorse, I simply looked at him and I said, I don't remember his name. I think I blocked it out. Uh, I think you need to do exactly what your family is telling you to do. I don't know if you have a path to forgiveness. I don't know if you can ever forgive yourself. I don't know who is going to be able to forgive you but you need to move away. The least that you can do for your family is move away. And he said to me, look, he said, I asked a social worker here. I asked a counselor here. I asked the guys and everyone said the same thing. And I wasn't listening to them and I wasn't having it. And then they said, go speak to Phyllis. She will be fair. And he said, if you're telling me to move away, I'm going to move away but he had absolutely no remorse. I have dealt with a lot of sex offenders, a lot of sex offenders, and mostly they have, in my mind and in my judgment, in my heart, what I feel is that they are very remorseful as a rule. But this particular guy, he thought he was above the fray and it was really quite unappealing. And Phyllis, so, so what happens? So you're in, you're helping, are you still um, helping um, prison inmates? I am actually mentoring a couple of people who are in the prison system, in the same prison, prison that I was attending. I am not sure if I'm going to go back. When COVID hit, what happened there was when COVID hit, they sent all the volunteers home. I don't know if I've made it clear that I've been a volunteer, not a 
not a paid employee. So when COVID hit, you know, they had to get rid of us. They had a very big outbreak in, in Brampton in the Ontario Correctional Institute there. 60 men got ill, 20 staff got ill. So we all had to go home volunteers. They have AA and CA and um, SORP, which is the sexual um, program. And actually, to make it clear, it's not really a sexual program. It's sexual offenders program. And um, so I went home and started writing a book. And I have been thinking about going back, but uh, I'm kind of busy with my book now. I'm busy with promoting it. And but is this your movie. second? Is this your second book, Phyllis, or is this the Prison Lady? The Prison Lady. I'm talking oh, good about. For you. I'm, I am busy with my book, The Prison Lady. I'm busy busy promoting The Prison Lady. Uh, there is a movie in the works. A screenplay is almost finished, and I will start to have um, some heavy involvement. So I'm unclear on whether I want to go back, but I am mentoring a couple of people that are going in there. One is doing Toastmasters in the prison system, and another gentleman, and these people tracked me down through my book. Um, they're not friends of mine who have said, hey, go to prison. These are people who read the book, tracked me down, and we spoke on the phone, and I said, listen, I'll I'll give you all the support and help I can. I'm not sure if I'm ready to go back or have the capacity to go back. And one gentleman goes in and teaches art. And apparently these guys are just just loved. So it's it's a great feeling. You, you've described to us your sort of counseling or therapy that you help provide to them. Has writing the book provided any therapy to yourself? Oh, I, <laughs> I mean, I think that the day that I walked into prison, I was a little bit of a tough ass. You know, I was teaching lawyers and I thought, hey, you're teaching lawyers. This is me thinking to myself, that's pretty, that's pretty cool. That's pretty special. And I was a little bit impatient, a little bit arrogant, a little bit, you know, full of myself, like that kind of stuff. Nothing really too horrible, but kind of. And I have to say that when I went into prison and began working with the men and women there, I became kinder, more respectful, more patient, very humble. I mean, I was in their home. I was on their sacred land and completely out of my element. And I began to change. When I began writing and I started talking about my dad and I started talking about um, the things that hurt me and the things that made me stronger. Yes, it was very, very enlightening. And, and it, it probably brought healing to a whole other level because all I can tell you is today with um, having made peace with my dad and having a beautiful person in my life, and that's many beautiful persons, but one in particular, uh, I just feel great. I feel great about, about people. And I want to actually, so I want to ask you, um, Phyllis, so did you, uh, about your father and your mother, because not only did your father, was he abusive, but also I'm sure that you were disappointed in your mom for not sort of coming to your rescue. So did you rec did you have a conversation with them ever years later to kind of work through this? I never did. My parents wow. died fairly young. And, you know, I think, I think the answer, you know, I really never thought about that a lot, Amy, but I think that the answer is that my life became so big and so full so quickly. Think about who I was. I had a, uh, I was a teenager. I had a, a, a disc jockey as a boyfriend. I was, we were walking down two opposite sides of the street because I mean, if my dad ever caught me with someone who was 
a DJ and a non-Jewish boy, I would be severely punished and he would do what we call sitting shiva, which is mourning the dead. That would be me, the dead person. <laughs> and, um, but, but in a serious way, I mean, I think you know a lot about what I'm talking about. So it wouldn't have been pretty, but my life was big. My life was big. I had a, I had a full-time boyfriend who was a DJ. I was go-go dancing for him until I decided to graduate myself down to Yorkville. I was go-go dancing in Yorkville, making money. And I had a ton of friends. I'm just a little bit outgoing. And that's <laughs> thanks <laughs> to my dad, who was an extreme introvert and decided his daughter was going to be an extrovert and it really took hold. And so it was a very full life. And I never felt the need to have any discussion with my parents. However, to your point, and in looking back, my mom was not there. My mom was in the corner of the room, crying, enduring migraines, and taking Fioranol. And quite out of it. I really, really don't blame her. And I also, Amy, I don't blame my dad either. My dad was an angry guy because of circumstances. I think, I think um, one podcaster, beautiful gal, pointed out to me that it's very likely that my father had PTSD. Her words were, you can't produce a kid like you and have you know, a horrible roots. So I don't know how true that is or not. What I know is that he may have had PTSD from coming back from the war. So, I mean, it doesn't matter to me at this point. What matters to me is who I am and how I've carried on my life and the things, the good things that I did get from my parents and, and particularly my dad. So as we, as we close out our half hour, and thank you very much for joining us, I just want to ask you, we ask this question every week, but uh, You've kind of come full circle, which is, I think is a wonderful thing, because with the hardships that you had with your upbringing and your father in particular, uh, now you have told us that there are a lot of positive things about your life and that have come from from that. Not so much from the abuse, obviously, but from from the other things that you picked up from your dad. So you 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 you've come out of this with a positive attitude. And you've done okay. positive things with it. So we have to ask you at this point, despite what you went through, why do you believe in people? Despite the people that you go and speak to in prison, why do you believe in people? I believe with all my heart that I was born to believe in people, to work alongside people, to help people. I believe in people because I believe that we all have a light inside of us that we all have a passion, we just need to find it. And I see my role is helping people find their passion. I have done that so often that there's, you know, some record of success there. And I'm, I'm, I can't even tell you in words what's in my heart for people, all people. And luckily, and this is incredible, I found a partner who's very much like me. It's a little scary, <laughs> a lot to handle. But for, um, for him or for you, for both, for both of us, <laughs> for both of us, we both love. I mean, I have to he he wants to get up on the ladder when people are restocking the shelves and thank them for their service. I have to drag him back. So if you think I love people and am somewhat extroverted, I mean, I, I've met my match. 
That's great. Phyllis, thank you so much for your time and, and your story. Really, you. really um, helpful in, in anyone who is going through their own journey and struggling in any way. Thank you. And thank you, Amy. Just tell people to follow their dream and don't let anything get in their way. When the window closes, just open the door and fly through it. And don't be afraid to step outside your comfort zone and take a chance. Well, uh, just before we say goodbye to, to the listeners who may not know, Yorkville is kind of like the Greenwich Village of Toronto in the 60s, 70s. Um, right. Are you still go-go dancing, Phyllis? No, I threw my hip out years ago. <laughs> so not so much. Now I'm now I'm dancing around the room with my grandchildren. It's a very different scene. Thanks That's so much great. for your time. Thank you. Been a Bye -bye. pleasure. Thanks, Phyllis. The one thing that I find that is really interesting is that I think um resiliency, how resilient we are, depending, I mean, just uh, look at all the things that Phyllis went through, and yet she's found a way to flourish found a, you know she's discovered what it is that she wants to do and what she's been her strengths are that that's what uh, is i find really interesting and uh, and the fact that she's taken that gift and now she has used it to help others and uh and benefit others uh, others many who are either rejected by society forgotten by society can't get over the, the the crimes that they committed and at least she's helping them have peace with themselves and if you found this conversation interesting, you want to uh, be inspired by other people, please subscribe to our podcast, Believe in People, or tune in again next week. Thanks for being with us. Thanks, everyone.